Volume Two, Chapter Six of Willard's Weird by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Chapter Six. Struck down. As Sir Edward Heathcote uttered those words, the conviction of their truth flashed into his mind. In thoughtful days and wakeful nights this question as to the identity of the person who was to meet leonie lemarque at the railway station had been a perplexity to him the subject of many a new theory and now it came upon him all at once that this assertion which he had made on the spur of the moment in the heat of argument was the true solution of the mystery it was to georges himself her daughter's generous adoring lover her daughter's suspected murderer that madame lemarque had sent her granddaughter as to one who of all other men would be most inclined to act generously to the orphan girl were it only in remorse for his crime he tried to realize the thoughts of the lonely old woman dying in penury leaving her orphan grandchild to face the world without a friend she would go over the list of those whom she had known in the past those who were rich enough to be generous alas how few there are who remain the friends of poverty one man she had known of although she had never seen him rich generous to lavishness she had at one time believed him to be the murderer of her daughter but it might be that she had afterwards modified her opinion that she had received some communication from this georges that he had assured her of his innocence that he had sent her money had helped her to struggle on against adverse times had helped her for a while and then grown weary and she knowing the place of his exile had in her desperation determined upon committing her grandchild to this man's care rather than to the pitiless world of strange faces and careless hearts the outside world to which one helpless girl the more is but as one drop in the ocean of sorrowing humanity she had sent leonie lemarque to meet this man and the girl had recognized the murderer of her aunt and yet this could hardly be since the cabman's evidence showed that leonie had been on the best possible terms with the person in whose company she drove to paddington station after that speech of his edward heathcote had no longer the power to withhold any details of his investigation from julian willard and his wife he told them in fewest words all that he had discovered since he crossed the channel dora was intensely interested in the story the passionate love and passionate jealousy were very human feelings that appealed to her womanly tenderness she could not withhold her pity from the murderer strange that in all your parisian experience you never met this monsieur georges she said to her husband hardly since i seldom went out in the evening while this man was evidently a thorough bohemian who only began to live after midnight answered willard he was sitting in a thoughtful attitude his elbow on the table his chin leaning on his hand and that photograph of marie prevol lying before him he was looking intently at it perusing every lineament presently he raised his eyes slowly thoughtfully from the photograph to the face of his wife yes said heathcote i know what you are thinking 
there is a likeness it struck me this evening when i came into this room there is a curious likeness between the face of the living and the dead that morning on studying the countenance in the photograph heathcote had been perplexed worried even by a sense of familiarity in that face of the dead it smiled at him as a face he had known of old a face out of the past yet it was only in the evening when he came into the salon at the windsor and mrs willard turned towards him in the lamplight that he knew what the likeness meant it was not an obvious or striking likeness the resemblance was rather in expression than in feature but one face recalled the other yes there is a likeness said willard coldly passing the photograph back to its owner who rose to take leave just as the clock on the mantelpiece struck eleven i shall look in tomorrow and see if you are inclined for an afternoon at st germain he said as he shook hands with dora you are very kind she said but your invitation is no longer tempting you have spoiled my interest in that sweet old place i shall always think of it as a scene of marie prevol's death but surely that is an additional charm said willard mockingly if you are gifted with mr heathcote's detective temper the genius of the heaven-born police officer st germain will be all the more interesting to you on account of a double murder and perhaps a suicide into the bargain for it is not unlikely that the murderer's bones are mouldering in some gravel pit you forget drubard's story of the travelling cap said heathcote that was a shrewd hypothesis on your ex-police officer's part but it is by no means conclusive evidence answered willard heathcote called at the windsor upon the following afternoon to inquire if mr and mrs willard had left for switzerland he was shocked to hear that mr willard had been taken seriously ill in the night and that there had been two medical men with him that morning madame was terribly distressed the waiter told him but she bore up admirably heathcote sent in his name and was at once admitted to the salon where dora came to him after the briefest delay she was very pale and there were signs of terror and of grief in her countenance i am glad you have come she faltered i should have sent for you only she hesitated and stopped with tears in her eyes feeling that in another moment she might have said too much he was her oldest friend the man to whom her thoughts turned naturally in the hour of trouble the man whom of all others she most trusted but he was her old lover also and she felt that never again could she dare to appeal to his friendship as she had done for bothwell's sake is there anything very serious he asked yes it is very serious paralysis only a slight attack the doctors say but there are signs of a physical decay which may end fatally an overworked nervous system the english physician says and yet his life has been so easy so placid for the last seven years no doubt but his life in this city was a life of excitement and anxiety the fever of the race for wealth he is suffering now most likely for the high pressure of that period is his mind affected by the shock not in the least his mind was never clearer than it has been to-day when did the illness begin early this morning five hours after you left us we sat up till nearly one o'clock talking of our trip to switzerland and italy 
Julian was in wonderful spirits. I have never known him more cheerful. He planned a tour that would last all through the winter, as I told him. It was one o'clock when I went to bed, and I left him sitting in his dressing-room, reading. The door was half open, and I could see him as he sat by the table, in the bright light of the lamp. I had slept for hours, as it seemed to me, when I was awakened by hearing my name called in a strange voice. I sprang out of bed, frightened by that unknown voice, and then I heard the name again, and knew all at once that it was Julian's voice, only altered beyond recognition. I rushed to him. He had sunk back into his armchair. I asked him what was the matter, and he told me that he could not move. There was numbness in all his limbs. His arms were as heavy as lead. I seized his hand and found it deadly cold. I rang the bell with all my might, and at last one of the women servants came to my help. She roused the porter and sent him to fetch a doctor. It was not quite four o'clock when she came to me, but it was past five o'clock before the doctor arrived. He told me at once that my husband had had a paralytic shock, and he helped me to get him to bed while the porter went in search of a nurse. I wanted to have nursed Julian myself without the help of any stranger, whose presence might worry him. But the doctor said that would be impossible. I must have a skilled nurse in attendance. There would be plenty for me to do in helping her, he said. So I submitted, and the nurse was with us in less than an hour, a nursing sister of the Order of St. Vincent de Paul, a very nice person. Is your doctor a clever man? The Frenchman who came in the morning seems clever, and, at my request, he brought Dr. Danvers, an English physician. I am told he is the best English doctor in Paris. They are both of the same opinion as to the nature of the attack. But Dr. Danvers is inclined to look upon it more seriously than the French doctor. He declared that Julian's brain must have been frightfully overworked within the last few years, and when I told him that my husband's life had, to my knowledge, been one of rest and tranquil monotony, I could see by his face that he did not believe me. Mr. Willard is better, I hope, since the morning. Yes, he is much better. There is still a feeling of heaviness and dull pain. But he is so patient, he will hardly confess he is in pain, though I can see from his face that he suffers. The tears rushed to her eyes, and she walked hastily to the window, where she stood for a few minutes holding her handkerchief before her face, with her back to Heathcote, who waited silently, knowing the uselessness of all consolatory speeches at such a time. She conquered herself and came back to her seat presently. Struck down in the prime of his manhood in all the force of his intellect she said it is a death-blow your english doctor may exaggerate the danger god grant that it is so i have telegraphed to sir william spencer entreating him to come to paris by tonight's mail the question of cost is nothing but i fear he may not be able to leave his practice so long or he may be away from london when did you telegraph an hour ago i'm expecting the answer at any moment i hope he will come what is it this dr danvers apprehends he fears an affection of the spinal marrow a slow and lingering malady full of pain oh it is too dreadful cried the agonized wife clasping her hands in a paroxysm of despair 
what has he done to be so afflicted how has he deserved such suffering he who worked so hard and denied himself all pleasures in his youth he who has been so good and generous to others why should he be tortured dear mrs willard pray do not give way to grief the doctor may be mistaken he ought not to have told you so much it was right of him to tell me i begged him to keep nothing from me not to treat me as a child if there is a martyrdom to be borne i will bear my part of it yes i will suffer with him pang for pang for to see him in pain will be as sharp an agony for me as the actual torture can be for him he is resting now dozing from the effect of the morphia which they have injected under the skin i trust if sir william spencer come that he will be able to give you a more hopeful opinion yes i am putting my trust in that but i am full of fear dr danvers has such a shrewd clever air he does not look like the kind of man to be mistaken but in these nervous disorders there is always room for error you must hope for the best i will try to hope for julian's sake good-bye i must go back to my place at his bedside i don't want him to see a strange face when he awakes good-bye remember if there is any service i can render you the slightest or the greatest you only have to command me i shall call this evening to hear how your patient progresses and if spencer is coming but i shall not ask to see you he left the hotel full of trouble at the agony of one he loved he thought of dora in her helplessness her loneliness watching the slow decay of that vigorous frame the gradual extinction of that powerful mind what martyrdom could be more terrible for a tender-hearted woman he called at the windsor in the evening the patient was much the same sir william spencer was expected at eight o'clock next morning edward heathcote was watching in front of the hotel when the physician drove up in a fly from the station dr danvers had gone into the hotel a few minutes before heathcote waited to see sir william spencer leave the hotel in the same fly accompanied to the carriage door by dr danvers they were talking as they came out of the porte cochere and their faces were very grave heathcote felt that the great english doctor had not left hope behind him in those rooms on the first floor with their sunny windows facing the palace garden he had not the heart to intrude upon dora immediately after the consultation though he was very anxious to hear sir william's verdict he watched the fly drive away while dr danvers walked briskly in the opposite direction and then he strolled along the rue de rivoli towards the palais royal hardly knowing where he went so deeply were his thoughts occupied by the grief of the woman he loved what if julian willard were to die that successful rival of his the man who had stolen his plighted wife from him the thought would come though heathcote tried to shut his mind against it though he hated himself for harboring so selfish an idea the question would shape itself in his mind would be answered somehow or other if julian willard were to die and dora were again free to wed whom she chose would the old love be rekindled in her heart would the old lover seem nearer and dearer to her than any other man on earth would she reward him for long years of patient devotion for a faithfulness that had never wavered alas no he could hope for no such reward 
he who had married within a year or two of losing her who had in the world's eye consoled himself speedily for that loss could he go to her and say i never loved my wife i married her out of pity my love was given to you and you alone that was his secret to dora willard he must have seemed as fickle as the common herd of men who change their loves as easily as they change their tailors he put forward no claim for past constancy no were she once again free it must be by the devotion of the future that he must win her and then he recalled what the physician had said about julian willard's malady it would be a slow and lingering disease a decay of years perhaps he saw the dark possibility of such a martyrdom dora's life would be worn and wasted in the attendance upon that decaying frame that sorely tried mind and temper she would sacrifice health spirits life itself perhaps in her devotion to her afflicted husband and when the end at last came the dismal end of all her care and tenderness would she be a woman to be wooed and won would not life for her be over all possibility of happiness for ever gone only a little respite a little rest remaining before the grave should close on her broken heart no there was no ground for selfish rejoicing for wicked hope in julia willard's malady heathcote ordered a simple breakfast in one of the quietest cafes in the palais royal and lingered over the meal and the newspapers till he was able to present himself with a better grace at the windsor he had some difficulty in reading the news of the day with attention or even comprehension so full were his thoughts he recalled julian willard's manner and bearing during the last few months and wondered at the vigor the freshness of mind the power which had been so obvious in every look and tone and gesture that such a man could suddenly be struck down without a day's warning without any imaginable cause had seemed almost incomprehensible had the nature of the attack been different the thing would have appeared less inexplicable an apoplectic fit striking down the strong man in his might as if from the blow of a nasmith hammer would have seemed far more in character with the nature of the patient his vigorous manhood his appearance of physical power heathcote called at the windsor between twelve and one o'clock and had only a few minutes to wait in the salon before he was joined by mrs willard she was very pale but she was more composed than on the previous day her countenance had a rigid look heathcote thought as if she had schooled herself to composure by a severe mental effort the hand she gave him was deadly cold i trust you have good news for me he said is spencer more hopeful than your paris physician no there is no hope i had a long talk with both the doctors after their consultation it was very difficult to wring the truth from them both to get them to be quite candid they seemed to pity me so much they were full of kindness as if kindness or pity would help me in my trouble for him nothing can help me no one except god and perhaps he will not it seems that in this life there are a certain number of victims chosen haphazard who must suffer mysterious purposeless agonies and julian is to be one of those sufferers it is bitter inexplicable cruel my mind revolts against these fruitless punishments tell me what sir william said the worst 
Julian's symptoms indicate a disease of the spinal cord, progressive muscular atrophy, Sir William called it, a disease generally caused by excessive muscular activity, but in this case due to the strain upon the mind. He will waste away, inch by inch, hour by hour, and he will suffer terribly. Yes, that is the worst. This gradual decay will be a long martyrdom. He will be dependent on opiates for relief. I am to take comfort in the thought that his pain can be soothed by repeated injections of morphia, that a sleeping draught will give him a little rest at night. He is to exist under the influence of narcotics. He, who a few months ago seemed the incarnation of health and vigour. A few months ago, you say? Then you have remarked a change in him of late, inquired Heathcote. Yes, there has been a change, subtle, mysterious. I could not describe the symptoms to Sir William Spencer, but there was a curious alteration in his ways and manner. He was much more irritable. He had strange intervals of silence. Can you recall the beginning of this alteration? Hardly. It was a change that seems to have had no beginning. It was so gradual, imperceptible almost. It was during that very oppressive weather early in August that I noticed he was looking ill and haggard. I thought that he was angry and worried about Bothwell, and that he was vexed at the stupidity of his bailiff who had mismanaged one of the farms, and involved him in a lawsuit with a tenant. I fancied these things were worrying him, and that the excessive heat was making him ill. I begged him to take medical advice, but he was angry at the suggestion and declared that he never felt better in his life. What does Sir William advise? That we should go back to Penmorval at once, or at least as soon as the proper arrangements can be made for the journey. I have telegraphed to Julian's valet to come here immediately, and Sir William will send a trained nurse from London by the evening mail. We shall have plenty of help. Fortunately, it is Julian's own wish to go back to Cornwall. Is there any improvement in his state today? I dare not say there is improvement. He is very calm, quite resigned. The physicians told him the nature of his malady, but they did not tell him that it is hopeless. They left his own intelligence to discover that, and I fear he knows the truth only too well already. Would you like to see him, if he is inclined to receive you? Yes, I should much like to see him. Dora went into the adjoining room and closed the door behind her. She reopened it almost immediately and beckoned to Heathcote, who went in with careful footstep and bated breath, almost as he might have entered the chamber of death. Julian Willard was reclining on a sofa, his head and shoulders propped up by pillows, his legs covered with a fur rug. There was something in the very position of the body, so straight, so rigid a line from the waist downwards, which told of that death in life that had fallen upon the strong man, the man whom Edward Heathcote had last seen erect in all the vigour of manhood, tall, broad-shouldered, powerful. "'Well, Heathcote, you have come to see the wreck of proud humanity,' he said, with a half-sad, half-cynical smile. You did not know when you were with us the other night that my race was so nearly run, that I was to break down in the middle of the course. I have had my warnings, but I made light of them, and the blow came unexpectedly at last. But it has left the brain clear. That is some comfort. Sit down. I want to talk to you, and Dora, seriously. He was very pale, 
white even to the lips and his wife was watching him anxiously surprised at the signs of profound agitation in him who had been so calm after the physicians had left him i'm very sorry for you willard sorry with all my heart said heathcote earnestly as he took the chair nearest the sofa while dora seated herself on the other side close to her husband you are more than good i am assured that everybody will pity me this with a smile of bitterest meaning but i want to talk to you about two people in whom you and dora are both interested your very lovable sister and my wife's scapegrace cousin they are very devoted to each other it seems and except for this little cloud upon bothwell's character i take it you had no objection to the match that was my chief objection forgive me for saying that it was a most foolish one because a few country bumpkins take it into their heads to suspect a gentleman pardon me mr willard if i confess that i was among those bumpkins mr graham's refusal to answer mr distin's questions and his obvious agitation led me to believe that he was concerned in that girl's death i am thankful to be able to say that my discoveries on this side of the channel all point in a different direction while on the other hand my sister assures me that her lover has satisfactorily explained the reason of his peculiar conduct at the inquest you have no further objection to bothwell as a husband for your sister no my esteem for the race from which he sprang is a strong reason why i should sanction the match although worldly wisdom is decidedly against a girl's marriage with a man who was a soldier and who is nothing it shall be our business dora's and mine to reconcile worldly wisdom and foolish love my wife tells me that her cousin has turned over a new leaf that he has schemed out a new career and has set to work with a wonderful amount of energy just that strong purpose which has been lacking in him hitherto i have heard as much and a good deal more than this from my sister well then my dear heathcote all i need to add is that means shall not be wanting to my wife's kinsman to enable him to carry out the scheme of life which he has made for himself comfortably and creditably dora and i are both rich we have no children we can afford to be generous in the present and those we love must naturally profit by our wealth in the future dora's fortune will in all likelihood go to bothwell's children in a word your sister is not asked to marry a pauper i have never thought of the question from a financial standpoint but it must be not the less agreeable to you to know that the financial aspect is satisfactory answered willard and now what is to hinder a speedy marriage it is my wife's wish bothwell's wish mine everybody's so far as i can understand except yours you are the only hindrance heathcote i want to see bothwell and hilda married before i die julian cried his wife with a stifled sob oh my dearest i'm not going to leave you yet a while answered her husband clasping her hand and raising it to his lips with infinite tenderness my doctors promise me a slow deliverance but when a man has begun to die were it never so gradually it is time for him to set his house in order i should like to see bothwell and hilda married in bodmin church before the eyes of the people who have maligned my wife's kinsman i should like the wedding to take place as soon as possible i'm sure hilda's brother will not refuse your request said dora with a pleading look at heathcote if hilda and her lover can fulfil their own scheme of happiness by a speedy marriage 
I will not be a stumbling block said Heathcote After this they talked for a while on indifferent subjects and of the journey back to Cornwall that tedious journey of a helpless invalid which would be so different from any previous experience of julian willard's he spoke of it lightly enough affecting a philosophical disdain for the changes and chances of this little life but heathcote marked the quiver of his lip the look of pain which neither pride nor stoicism could suppress yes it was a hard thing for such a man in the very prime of life handsome clever prosperous to be so struck down and it could but be said that julian willard carried himself firmly under the trial heathcote and dora parted sorrowfully outside the sick-room is it not good of him to see bothwell's happiness secured she said it is very good of him to think of any one except himself at such a moment answered heathcote i am so glad he has won your consent to an early marriage and now that you have given that consent now that we are all assured of the folly of any suspicion pointing at bothwell i conclude that you will trouble yourself no more about the mystery of that poor girl's death there you are mistaken i shall go on with my investigation in the cause of justice besides bothwell's character can never be thoroughly rehabilitated till the real criminal is found and for a third reason I'm interested in this strange story as a work of art Goodbye, mrs. Willard if I can be of any use to you tomorrow in helping to move your invalid pray send for me If not, I suppose we shall not meet till I call on you at Penmorval. I Leave the business of Hilda's marriage to your discretion She cannot have a better adviser than you and whatever plans you make I shall sanction He left the hotel and strolled slowly towards the Madeleine hardly knowing what he should do with the rest of his day he had an appointment with sigismund trottier in the evening that gentleman and he were to meet at the gymnase at the first performance of a new play and were to sup at rachette's afterwards when heathcote was to hear any fresh facts that the paragraphist might have gathered for him relating to the mysterious georges and the once celebrated mademoiselle Préval trottier had promised to hunt up the few men who had been intimate with georges and to get all the information he could from them in front of the madeleine heathcote was overtaken by that good-natured merchant gustave blumenlein who had felt so much pleasure in showing his apartments to mrs willard they walked on together for a short distance in the direction of the blumenlein establishment and heathcote told the merchant of his predecessor's sudden illness Monsieur Blumenlein was interested and sympathetic and as they were now in front of his office He insisted upon mr. Heathcote going in to smoke a cigarette or share a bottle of Lafitte with him Heathcote refused the Lafitte but accepted the cigarette not sorry to find an excuse for revisiting his rival's old abode He blamed himself for this curiosity about Julian Willard's youth as an unworthy and petty feeling yet he could not resist the temptation to gratify that curiosity which chance had thrown in his way they went through the offices where clerks were working at their ledgers and warehousemen hurrying in and out and passed into the library that handsome and somewhat luxurious apartment which remained in all things save the books upon the shelves exactly as julian willard had left it did you know him twenty years ago asked blumenlein 
after they had talked of the late tenant and his successful career in paris no i never saw him till just before his marriage about seven years ago ah then you did not know him as a young man i have a photograph of him in that drawer yonder pointing to a writing-table by the fireplace taken fifteen years ago when he was beginning to make his fortune when the crédit moresque was at the height of its popularity it went to smash afterwards as no doubt you know but willard contrived to get out of it with clean hands only just contrived you mean to say that his part of the transaction was open to doubt my dear sir on the bourse during the empire everything was more or less open to doubt there were only two irrefragable facts in the financial world of that time there was a great deal of money made and a great deal of money lost mr willard was a very clever man and he contrived from the first to last on the winning side nobody ever brought any charge of foul play against him and in this matter he was luckier or cleverer than the majority of his compeers i should like to see that photograph of which you spoke just now said heathcote you shall see it a clever face a remarkable face i take it answered blumenlein unlocking a drawer and producing a photograph yes it was a fine head a powerful head instinct with wondrous vitality with the energy of a man bound to dominate others in any sphere of life a master of whatever craft he practised it was not the face of abstract intellect the white cold light of the student did not illumine those eyes nor did the calm of the student's tranquil temper inform the mouth there was passion in the face strongest human feelings were expressed there the love of love the hate of hate it is a marvellous face for a money-grubber exclaimed heathcote an extraordinary countenance for a man who could shut himself from all the charms of the world such a world as the second empire a man who could be indifferent to art beauty wit music social pleasures of all kinds and live only for his cash-box and bank-book difficult to reconcile this face with the life which we are told willard led in these rooms it is more than difficult said blumenlein it is to my mind impossible to believe in so monstrous an anomaly as that sordid life endured for nearly ten years by such a temperament as that which the photograph indicates i am something of a physiognomist and i think i know what that face means if faces have any meaning whatever it means strong feeling a fervid imagination a mind that could not be satisfied with the triumphs of successful finance it means a nature in which the heart must have fair play whatever julian willard's life may have appeared in the eyes of the men with whom he had business relations however he may have contrived to pass for the serious genius of finance old before his time the embodiment of abstruse calculations and far-seeing policy be sure that the life was not a barren life and that fiery passions were factors in the sum of that existence but his life seems to have been patent to all the world yes mr heathcote the life he led in public but who knows how he may have plunged into the dissipations of paris after office hours that little door in the alcove has its significance you may be sure i made light of it in mrs willard's presence for i know that women are jealous even of the past 
why should i deprive her of the pleasure of considering her husband a model of propriety in the remote past as well as in the present i affected for that dear lady's sake to believe the side door the work of a prior tenant to mr willard but i happen to have documentary evidence that mr willard had the door made for him in the third year of his tenancy i found the receipted account of the builder who made it among some papers left by my predecessor at the back of a cupboard then you think that willard was a man with two faces i do replied blumenlein i think that willard the speculator and financier was one man but there was another man of whose life the world knew nothing and who went out and came in between dusk and dawn by that side door in the court End of chapter 6